So, welcome back to the Birdie Bug Pod, episode 11. So, what are we talking about today, Matthew? Well, after the carnage of our 10th episode... It it was a bit chaotic, wasn't it? We're we're back to a more normal episode focused on a habitat that's important. Uh, But before that, normal catch-up? Yeah, normal little catch-up. I don't think I've got too much but you've actually got something have you i've got two things for a change wow. one is a very minor one uh, i'm finally back to posting on instagram for a bug He's in back. the lens uh, it's been like two months i think a um, bug in the lens is back yeah i haven't actually managed to go out and take any more photos i've just actually got around to sitting and going through old ones to try and find ones that are sort of post worthy until i wait for spring and and the insects to reappear um but it's nice to just actually be doing that again yes definitely and then I am fundraising for my own organisation. I'm fundraising for the Rivers Trust by doing a mile swim at Henley Swim Festival in July. So I'm swimming a mile in a river. So that should be fun. I need to actually do some training. Is, is this a shameless plug for your Just Giving page? Yeah, if anybody wants to fundraise <laughs> the Rivers Trust. Yeah, we always talk about great organisations doing great things. Well, like... So we're, we're doing stuff. So, yes, yeah, so that should be good fun. I think the Rivers Trust uh, actually were at Henley Swim Fest 2022, but that was before I joined them. And so it gives me a chance to not only run the fundraising campaign, but also take part in it. Uh, but beyond plugging myself, if anybody fancied coming for a nice swim, uh, it should be a really good fun event with food and drink and entertainment and stuff. And if you want to come do some fundraising, either for the Rivers Trust or anyone else, then Henley Swim Festival don't have to swim a mile. You can swim half a mile or 400 metres or four miles, but it should be good fun. So the money being raised, is that uh, being used for a specific purpose or is it just going into the Rivers Trust to do what they always do so brilliantly? Just general campaign work. Yeah. It's not okay. for a specific project. It's it. just um, it, it's, it's fitting, uh, especially for the wild swimmers who love swimming in our rivers, yeah. given how much of the work goes towards sort of trying to clean them up and things like that. It's a nice way to raise money swim in a river to save the yeah river. definitely yeah um but currently it, it's it's already shaping up to be how clean is the river it. it's a nice part of the thames it should be fun yeah in henley it's posh because we you know we've talked of this about this quite a lot about the fact that some of our rivers are not particularly no. clean in fact quite um, quite a lot of them well, actually help clean them up by swimming in them yeah yeah but it's a good should, cause I yeah, like it, it so should be good, good fun cause. so it's a shameless plug uh, i thought i'd mention it it is nothing wrong with a shameless plug when we've done Always, when we've done this, uh, an episode of the podcast, I do a shameless plug on my Instagram yeah. page a couple and of I days mean, later. So I have to say nothing wrong with that, and very much specify that the, my views on this podcast are not the Rivers Trust views. This is this is very much me and not the organisation. Is but that your disclaimer? That is my disclaimer because mm. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Yeah, not that it's anything controversial, but I just thought it might be fun to plug the the fundraising swim. Yeah, I think it's a good cause, and and yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, of course you will. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well that's good. That's that's nice that you've actually contributed, contributed yeah. to the catch up this time. I haven't got very much. I haven't been out doing very much uh, bird photography uh, for various reasons, which I won't bore you with. But I have done something that I've wanted to do for quite a long time now. Actually, I've actually applied for a volunteer position with the RSPB and got it, and I did get it and. It was quite weird, actually, because I've always worked for myself since I was the age of 24. I've always worked for myself, and I've never, ever had a job interview. And I had to have a little 45-minute interview. They 
didn't want to call it an interview because it was like a, a chat. But of course, they then hit me with some questions that sounded like an interview. So, um, And obviously, we won't tell the RSPB that you uh, phoned me to do a test on Teams to check that you knew how to work <laughs> it. No, we won't, we won't tell them that because for some reason they think I'm quite techie. So uh, we don't want to <laughs> disillusion them. You know, I haven't even started the job properly yet. So, but anyway, I'm 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 chuffed a bit. So I applied for this volunteer position, and a couple of days later got it. So I'm in the early stages of meeting the team and finding out the responsibilities. And um, I'll tell you a bit more about it once a minute. Yeah, I'll tell you be some cool. Catch yeah, up. I won't tell you what it's about at the moment. But in another catch up, I'll tell but you. But it's where nice I am to join the RSPV team. Yeah, for a I want bit. to always want to sort of give something back, and although. You know, you give something back being a member anyway because you, you pay a donation or an annual fee. Um, but I wanted to do more than that. I wanted to actually give, if you give time. And it's not about money it. all the time. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's about giving time and giving your spare time to helping out. And that's what I really fancy doing. And you doing. end up meeting nice people. There's always nice oh, people in the such in these a organizations. nice team of people that I've met already. So they're delightful. Yeah, so you um, meet more nature yeah. nerds yeah so um i'm i'm yeah i'm very pleased to have done that um stepping out of my comfort zone a little bit and sometimes it's that's a good thing um and uh, i'll say i'll tell you more about it in in further episodes so nice. um yeah Should so that's fun. about my catch-up actually well, look at that. so that's an efficient really. catch-up for the two of us definitely uh so we'll move on to the actual topic let's crack on and this is a topic that you particularly wanted to uh to do yeah and this actually came about i think i i think i did plug the book ages ago um i think it's called back to nature uh and it was the book by sophie pavel who works for the beaver trust and each chapter focuses on some part of nature that the uk has it's a really good book yeah it's normally a species or a habitat that, that we've lost a lot of and then it highlights the importance and why it'd be so bad to lose it and and the work that's being done to sort of bring some of these species back from the brink and one of the chapters one of the early chapters was on seagrass and i've heard it called the most important habitat that no one's ever heard of and i hadn't really <clears throat> heard of it a lot well i've got to admit um you came up with this idea for this episode and it, i'd heard of it but didn't know very much about it until yeah. i started doing research for this for this uh podcast so, so. I, I read that chapter and i thought it was interesting and i swear it popped up in one of the autumn watch or winter watch or on their social media i saw it somewhere again and it reminded me uh of the book and i was reminded me that i found it interesting and so i thought it might be a fun one to talk i about. think they have done it on autumn it definitely watch popped up somewhere because they were talking about is it pipe fish they were talking yeah. about um i think so anyway i, I think I, it was i just remember i read the book a while ago and and something jogged my memory and given, like I say, it's known as a, an important habitat that people don't really know about, it might be fun to shine some light well, on Well, I've learned that it's an incredibly important yeah. habitat. I mean, seriously important. So we'll we'll crack on and yeah, tell so you a bit more about it. Normal habitat sort of episode. We'll talk about what it is, why it's important, what's happened to it, and then what is being done to yeah. try and bring it back. Yeah. So we'll kick it off with what it is. Okay. Do you, want to, do you want to do that? Do you want I'll me take to do it. that? Uh, so it's actually the only flowering plant that can live in seawater. It's also on the only, well, hand in hand with that, the only plant that can pollinate underwater, which is just mad. Uh, and in the UK, we've got four species of seagrass, two species of tassel weed, and two species of zostera. 
Otherwise known as eel grass. Eel grass, yeah. yeah. And essentially what it is, is it's a grass-like plant that forms, when they grow close together, they form essentially what looks like a meadow underwater. So yes, they like, call them seagrass meadows, yeah. don't they? So you end up with these long blades of grass. And it's uh, very different to seaweed, so it's not well, seaweed's seaweed. Seaweed's algae. Yeah, um, it's actually looks like it's an actual bright plant. green-leafed yeah. grasses. So, so you, uh, you literally get a meadow underwater. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, they are actually more closely related to gingers and lilies than true grasses. So it's not actually within the family of like a true grass. It just looks very much like a grass. Yeah, and you find them, uh, I think, as you said, in shallow waters. And you yeah. can find them where we used to have them all around the coastline of this country. And of course, you know, worldwide as well. But yeah, they tend to be in most, shallow water. Yeah, shallow near shore. Yeah. Uh, and they're on most of the world's yeah. continents. Um but beyond the fact they're just an incredible evolutionary feat of a pollinating flowering plant underwater, seawater at that, they're also just a vital habitat. Um, I've got here, they are among the most productive ecosystems on the planet. Yeah, and obviously not so much for the UK, but they're a hugely important food source for things like turtles. Yeah. And I'm going to say manatees because I can't pronounce the other word. Um, but more around the UK shores, they're really important for things like fish and crustaceans. Um, Are we going on to why they're important? Yeah, it merges into why Merging they're important. I was one. going through sort of the ecology yeah. of it. Yeah, um, they are incredibly important uh, habitats. Um, I think we were talking about the waterfowl earlier. Um, yes, specifically widgeon. Yeah, I think when when these water meadow, sorry, these seagrass meadows are found, you know, in estuaries. Um, which they are, um, they're a really important food source for, for waterfowl like widgeon and, you know, well, all sorts of waterfowl. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they're incredible places. Yeah, and beyond that, just ob- obviously things like fish and, and for things like the fishing industry, they do support worldwide a huge amount of the food stock of fish that we consume. Yes. Um, but beyond being just a good habitat for wildlife, they provide a variety of environmental services is what i'm going to call them uh so things like keeping the water clean so they're particularly good at absorbing runoff into water um, as well as sort of stabilizing the sediment so it sort of keeps that habitat nice and stable it will filter out some of the pollutants and things like that so they're quite important for like just a clean healthy stable habitat yeah so quite good that that stabilizing the sediment is also quite good to uh, stem coastal erosion as yeah. well isn't it so it's very important in that respect yeah uh, and on top of that if, if if we needed more reasons to love it a bit like when we spoke about wetlands they are a huge carbon storer yes and a bit like we talked about peat bogs and yeah and when we talked about and, forests and yeah things like yeah. that they uh, are a incredibly valuable store of carbon which obviously as climate change progresses is something that we need to make sure we're maintaining and not and not losing um yeah i've got here they store carbon 35 times faster than rainforests one of the most important solutions to climate change yeah i think and they produce more oxygen than all of the rainforests and grasslands combined yeah which is it's actually which is bonkers it's it? incredible how much oxygen is produced in the sea whether it's from seagrass meadows or from like phyto uh, like algae, like phytoplankton and things like that, they produce a huge quantity. We always think of trees as being sort of the yeah. the oxygen producers, yeah. but there's a huge amount that comes from comes from uh, habitats in the yes, ocean. Yes, and you know, like the like the trees that are taking carbon out of the air, carbon dioxide out of the air, 
to strengthen their trunks and their root systems, the seagrass um, plants and meadows are taking carbon out of the water. Yeah. Um, uh, doing think... exactly the same thing. And then as they die down and new shoots appear and leaves appear, all of that dead matter and organic matter. Yeah, exactly as um, we spoke Exactly about as we talked about with wetlands yeah. and, and peatlands. So they are an underwater peat Store. bog. Yeah, <laughs> and, Basic. and uh, what I've got here is actually that despite covering less than 0.2% of the ocean's floor, they account for 10% of the buried carbon store in the ocean. So yeah. like, such a, a huge amount given how, again, as we spoke about wetlands taking up such a small amount of terrestrial land and storing a lot, these don't take up a huge amount of space but store so much carbon, uh, which again, if you end up losing, whether that's through uh, which we'll get onto that as they deteriorate, that carbon is then released. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but they're good at containing it. But if we damage it, they'll release it. Yeah, and I've got to admit, until until I started looking into you know, the research for seagrass, I didn't realise any of this. I didn't realise no, just didn't. how important uh, they are. Until I, read, until I read the book, I also didn't realise yeah. that it was something, because you don't really see them, that they used to be all around our coastlines yeah. and, and things like that. And you sort of have to go to very specific locations if you want to, if you actually want to see them. Uh, because sadly, we have lost a lot, which is probably quite a nice segue into what's, ha- what's happened to them, well, why, they're, why they've sort of deteriorated. Uh, 92% we've lost, apparently. In the UK. In the UK. Yeah. And I think it's a third globally of the seagrass meadows have disappeared. Yeah, and I think I've got that globally we lose a roughly the same size as two football pitches every single hour. It's a hectare. a hectare. They talk about it in hectares, and I had to go and look up what a hectare was in size. We, it's the equivalent. A hectare is equivalent to two and a half acres or 10,000 square metres, so it's actually quite a big area. Or two football pitches. Or two football pitches, yeah. if you want to put it in that kind of way, which makes... Actually, you can picture that quite... Quite well, can't well, you? Well, I saw a picture of how much effort it is to run the length of a football pitch. If I have to do that twice, that's that's a lot of land. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's been a variety of causes to, to the loss of seagrass uh, meadows. It's down to us again, isn't well, it, really? For, in the 1930s, there was a huge decline due to a wasting disease called seagrass wasting disease, funnily enough. And it was literally just a, a plant disease that tore through a lot of our um, seagrass meadows. But the problem is, is the human disturbances and stuff which i'm sure we'll talk about has really hampered our ability to for them to actually recover from that disease so that sort of caused the initial uh damage and then they've never really been able to recover and they've continued to deteriorate because of us as as per as per as per usual when we talk about the decline in things yeah um and it varies from like industrial stuff even like personal activities um so we've got things We've got the normal contenders when it comes to habitat uh, issues like pollution. So obviously we've spoken about our rivers, but also our, our oceans suffer from a lot of sewage, uh, which as will come as no surprise, sort of impacts the nutrient balance in, in our coastal uh, waters. Yeah, the other thing about sewage is it um, promotes the growth of algae. Yeah, which can outcompete. And, and that also restricts the sunlight coming in and it outcompetes the seagrass and then uh, eventually it, it dies out because yeah. it can't actually survive. Which so. is, to be fair, again, I can't remember which podcast episode we, we mentioned it, but that sort of algal bloom so yeah. it blocks out sun and it causes a lot of organisms to die yeah. off because, as we've said, the seagrass 
uh, houses a lot of wildlife, and once they go, that wildlife. Do you goes want a statistic well. about that? I'd love a statistic about that. About how much wildlife one hectare of seagrass meadow can can um, support? Yes. It's. Uh, I don't know how they work these figures out, but this is what I've read: eighty thousand fish, and up to a hundred million small invertebrates. Oh, like shrimp and crustaceans. It can support and... be supported in one hectare of seagrass meadow so yeah they, they obviously support a huge amount of wildlife and yeah they say the sewage algal blooms wipes yeah. all that out um say so they can filter out a certain amount of runoff but there's a difference between a little bit of runoff and just having sewage pumped into your coastal waters there's, there's, there's yeah, a limit not... to the amount it can handle yeah uh, they are also quite sensitive to things like ph changes and stuff like that and again any treated or untreated sewage will impact that balance quite yeah. quickly um so that's that's one of the normal contenders yeah Pretty another thing wherever we go we talk about sewage yeah and other things that we talked about pesticides and livestock waste that yeah. obviously runs off into the rivers the rivers run into the sea and all of that all of changes that, ph um, nutrient levels yeah all feeds into one another but we also have a variety of like physical disturbances less of a sort of the chemical issues and there's all sorts of um, problems when it comes to that, whether or not it's from big fishing vessels, which just when you have like a big turbine underwater and it churns it, yeah. churns everything up, disrupts all the sediments, disrupts the root base, essentially almost like pulls them out of the seabed is, is a massive disturbance, uh, along with fishing vessels, which you, I think that word sort of implies like big industrial ones, but even because they're shallow water near shore, even people going out in their own little boats whether or not it's fishermen or like um recreational almost like jet ski type yeah. things all of these things that happen around the coast of just disturbing the water yes and um boat anchors are very yeah. bad as well because if obviously if you throw an anchor over a boat it gets dragged yeah. for however long yeah. before the boat sort of um is anchored again just pulls it all out it's a bit like i guess if you were to drag something through your grass in your garden yes, like it's exactly going to cause quite a lot of damage and of course as you know coastlines have got busier and busier from tourist point of view and yeah, more and more people are going out, and you know, in, in recreational boating yeah. and all of that stuff. Um, and as you know, say as the coastal areas develop, you get things like dredging happening, yeah. and then actual, almost like um, building work happening in, in those areas as well. It's just constant disturbance to the to the seabed, which is why it's declined by ninety two percent in the last thirty years. Yeah. I believe it is. It is so. all sort of a lot of the decline and problems have happened yeah, in the last sort of 30 years as, as we've just not necessarily treated our coastlines uh very gently um and it is one of those things where the sewage and the industrial side of stuff isn't something that we can impact quite so much but say having the knowledge of if, if people are listening who i don't know frequently use uh, small vessels for fishing or, or other recreational activities it's just something to bear in mind about whereabouts you are and and some of the things that you do that might cause damage to these habitats because there's a lot of information out there now about how to mitigate some of those impacts certain areas where the, where you can and can't drop anchors or areas where certain it seems weird to think of a speed limit along the coast but again all those like slight mm. changes in behavior that can sort of mitigate some of the impact that we have even not on seagrass meadows but just our coastal habitats as a whole it's trying to get people to take notice of that isn't it when they're out um you know yeah. having fun it's... yeah uh but that's just where some of the education comes in yeah. maybe from the areas that say hire out equipment yeah. or 
or whatever or store boats there should definitely be more awareness of it um you know at those those kind of areas it should be yeah it should be made uh, a lot more aware of hopefully with things like what we're going to go like the organizations that we'll go on to talk about but also think people like um spring watch autumn watch winter watch those sorts of programs highlighting the decline yeah they're, they're watched by so many people you would like to think that yeah, that, millions, that, yeah. that raises the awareness of these yeah. these habitats at, at least a little bit obviously not as much as we're doing like spring watch has got nothing quite on us well of course it hasn't you know one day they'll make it up to our level but it's going to take them a while yeah isn't it? come on chris um <laughs> but yeah so we said that we've lost a lot uh to put a number to that there's there's we've already spoken about hectares there's only eight thousand five hundred hectares of seagrass meadow left um apparently that's about 32 square miles uh, or an area smaller than newcastle upon tyne right okay i don't know how big newcastle well, i guess it sounds quite big yeah so there's been a bit of a rush i don't i don't think necessarily recently but it's gained a bit more publicity recently to try and actually restore our seagrass meadows in the uk yeah um and leading the way is the seagrass project yeah i think it is project seagrass project seagrass yeah um who are just doing some incredible work and i've seen some footage of how they plant the seeds and it's yeah incredible. actually if you want to definitely if you want to learn more about seagrass definitely visit that website we'll put a link on at the end but they they've got some fantastic information and videos and yeah. obviously they're doing a huge amount uh for conservation of seagrass meadows and um uh re generating seagrass meadows yes yeah, so I, I replanting i think would be a better word. they've got um quite a few partners on board and i don't think i can remember all of them but the wwf are involved plymouth university no, swansea university pretty I sure believe. plymouth are in there oh, too, okay i um, think have you got any any of the other I've partners got, uh, sky ocean rescue was another one swansea university wwf uh, and project seagrass and what they've done is they've gone around the seagrass meadows collected seeds yeah um and they planted 1.2 million uh, seagrass seeds across 20,000 square meters I think it was uh, and they've done this first um, this first little project in Pembrokeshire in yeah. Wales it's almost like a, a pilot study it's to a little see pilot how, thing how well to see goes. how it goes and if it goes well then they will try and roll that out around the country eventually I think there was a target actually the the target of this project if the first pilot is successful in Wales is to roll out, um, yes, across the UK, and the target was 2,500 hectares to be restored by 2050. That's a, a lot of a space. Lot. Yeah. Um, and I, again, I can't remember whether it was in an article or whether it was actually in Sophie's book, but they described the the process of the volunteers and having all these volunteers on a beach essentially creating almost like little netted balls of seeds that then got passed through and then oh, they right. would end up being planted yeah. along and so you had volunteers making essentially like little seed packets that then the other volunteers go out and implant into the seabed do it with all sorts of little bits of kit to, to how many sure volunteers was that a huge i yeah. can't remember the i think number, it was in the thousands it was, wasn't yeah it? it was a it was a massive undertaking another one is really heartwarming stories which is watching people all come together in rows on a beach to to get yeah, seeds into the yeah. sea and then obviously you've got um, I imagine so with, with people like Swansea University, you've probably got students either their masters or PhD projects monitoring it yeah. as, over time as part of um, as part of the study to to monitor biodiversity levels and whether or not those seeds will take and grow and 
flourish. Well, and also to put that into perspective, that first project covered, like it says 20,000 square meters, which is only two hectares. So that target of two and a half thousand hectares yeah. is a big target. It's going target. to take a lot of manpower. A lot of manpower, a lot uh, of volunteers. A lot of which will come from volunteers, yeah. yeah. Especially, I think a lot of them were just local people who loved their loved their um, yeah. beach and, and wanted to do something to make it healthier and help out. And so, yeah, it was a quite an undertaking. And to do that by 2050, it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah. Um, I don't know at what point they're going to start sort of releasing any stats for th- how successful the pilot has been. But it's an incredible thing to to get involved with, to, to get out there and literally plant seeds in. in the well, I guess bed. also if they're going to try and roll this out, if it is successful around the country, you know, if you fancy having a go at that or you could be a volunteer of that, the Project Seagrass website is the place to go to. Yeah, you it's, can, it's, it's a good website can, anyway. It is a brilliant website and you, obviously you can donate on there for that. Um, that organisation, but also I guess you could sign up and volunteer because yeah. I think that'd be a brilliant thing to do. It, it's one of those we we often highlight the the same organisations. Uh, I think quite a lot of our episodes have been quite like, bird related, yeah. for example. And so we often talk about the BTO, the RSPB, uh, WWT, for example. But sometimes forget about these organisations that aren't so well known, and they're all out there doing something incredible and sometimes, yeah, sometimes quite work. niche you know this is an organization yeah. whose sole focus is to work on seagrass and i've never they're... heard of them and they're mm. out there planting all these seeds and doing fantastic work yeah they are and they're also again it seems like a sometimes an impossible mountain to climb but they're also really really trying to get governments on board the government and governments on board obviously this is a global thing or will be uh, a global thing um you know help from the government and recognition from the government of how important this work is and that does sometimes feel like a an yeah, impossible mountain um to climb but i mean last i should know because i did a social media post on it last week i think it was the government released their environment plan environment action plan as it was called which um so we're not really a political podcast but they they release what sound like very very good targets. They're gonna do X save or or restore X number or uh, length of rivers and coast stuff, but not a lot of detail on what that actually means. But it would be great to see projects like this Definitely. receiving funding because we've spoken obviously about <clears throat> how important they are ecologically, just for for boosting our wildlife along the coast, but also as a carbon store. And considering how many uh, plans and goals have come out for our carbon footprint as a country this is a fantastic way of storing up a lot of carbon is by restoring our seagrass meadows so you'd like to think that'd be something they could you would like to think so wouldn't you have to wait and see so we we don't we try not to get very political i know i think if we try if we get political we probably end up getting angry so we don't want to do that yeah it's nice (laughs) to focus i say it's nice to focus on the the positive thing the fact that so many people have never heard of seagrass meadows and yet there's thousands of volunteers out there yeah and probably sticking very few people have heard of project seagrass i mean i certainly hadn't until i started doing this research and um and i shall definitely follow them there are there are something also that they run which everyone again can contribute to without any you know a huge amount of, of um uh, inconvenience is they do a thing called seagrass spotting yeah and uh anybody that's finds as they're you know doing a coastal walk or they're down on the beach or swimming swimming or whatever if you actually see seagrass meadow they actually want you to take a photograph of it if you can from above so um you know above the water obviously uh, unless you're swimming in it and 
scuba diving, I guess. Or GoPro or something. um, Or or snorkeling. Um, And then there's an app that you can download and upload that, not only the picture, but obviously the the time, place, etc., that that you've uh, found this seagrass meadow. And that data is all being stored and is hugely important for them to recognise the areas that are good for restoration. So it's a really good thing. I quite fancy it. I don't know round here where I live... Um, you know, I live near near Worthing and Brighton. I don't know whether there are seagrass meadows around near me on our coast, but I'm five minutes from the beach. I don't know whether there are or not. Yeah, but... and again, their website has great information on, yeah. on actually how to identify yes. it because, like I say, the two of us not seagrass experts um, by any stretch of the imagination, so I'm not sure I would recognise it. No, I mean, we'd probably go and meadow. see, you know, look at seaweed and think that's what it is, but so it's not that there's, there's brilliant information on there, and, and I think it's becoming quite clear that we're big advocates of citizen science, whether yeah. it's the, whether you did the big garden bird watch yeah. on the weekend that's just gone, or the BTO obviously do a lot. We we love a bit of citizen science, and so if Well, you, if actually, you're... all of those organisations... Um, they they say just how important yeah. citizen science is to them. In fact, it ta- it makes up a massive amount of the data that they process. Yeah, well, I think you know, as as environmental charities, science. having the ability to I don't know fund however many scientists to permanently monitor all of the coast and all the yeah, rivers, it's, just it's just not viable, not viable mm. at all, even for an actual company. And so the people who know their coasts and the rivers best are the people who are out there yeah. all the time, whether it's dog walking or paddling or, or whatever. The people who are there throughout the seasonal changes end up spotting things that somebody visiting for a week of surveying might not. And yeah. so having that resource of people who all know their local patch, all just chipping in with think i've spotted some seagrass or sewage is being pumped out in here it's it's so valuable for the people to then just monitor the health of our habitats. definitely yeah so you know if you do live by a coast or or you regularly visit a coastline or any part or of the country yeah, you're visiting for a summer holiday or um, something exactly. just brush you up do, on your seagrass identification yeah, go on to project seagrass to be able to identify it's a very easy thing to do you know we've all carry mobile phones that take fantastic pictures so um you know, you can upload a photo, upload some data, and that that's a way that you can contribute and help. And yeah. that's incredibly important data that, that they are that, you know, asking people to send in. So Beyond, obviously, just also following them on social media and sharing their Definitely. articles and just making sure, just trying to get the word out there. But hopefully, hopefully that pilot study will pump out some interesting and successful Yeah, stats. and, and it, it's also... Um, it's also a bigger target and a bigger directive for this project as well because it is their aim um, for the UK to be a global leader in restoring ocean health. That is their hope that over yeah. you know, over the decades that the UK does become this global leader of recognising the importance of our oceans. What a fantastic accolade that would be. Wouldn't it be? So, and we need a few in this country at the especially moment. Especially environmentally we do. <laughs> we, we certainly do. So... So those are the um, yeah those yeah that's the situation really those are the the hopeful things yeah. that we like to talk about that there is hope um, that people are working so hard to try and restore these habitats and if you can get involved yeah or, uh, I found it I found it, it really fascinating it. actually yeah. learning about seagrass it's not often you come across an entire habitat you don't really know about no. um, so it's quite an exciting thing to learn about Definitely. the fact that it should just be out there on our coast supporting our fish and crustaceans you know it supports octopus and i've never seen one ever but it supports seahorses and we have seahorses we have long and short snouted seahorses they're they're very threatened and they're very rare i would think to see now yeah dorset being a 
a good place to see them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, even things like cuttlefish and octopus and yeah. all these incredible creatures that we've got on our coast absolutely love a seagrass meadow, whether it's from food source or a, a breeding ground. So it's just it's just incredible. Yeah. Well, so, I think we're done, are we? Yeah, we'll, we'll wrap it up. So, yeah, seagrass meadows, incredible. People out there working hard. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Yeah, let us also, you know, do comment. Do let us know um, if you've ever seen seagrass, if you know where there is if any. If you knew what it was. Uh, if you knew what it was. Uh, we'll put some links to those uh, organisations that we've been talking about. I'll also stick a link for uh, Sophie Pavel's book because it, yeah. is, it is a great chapter on it. And beyond that, it's just a good book anyway. Yeah. So um, get out there and spot seagrass. Yeah. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah. Will cool. do. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Thank <laughs> you.